0: Okay, thanks very much everyone for coming, Um, I've got to introduce myself, I'm Tara Stubbs, I'm new to the department, Um, I'm a university lecturer in English Literature and Creative Writing and one of my um, interests is Irish Literature and I've got a few people from my Irish Poetry class here today, thank you for coming and from Foundation Certificate, thank you for coming as well. Um, So today I'm going to be talking about WB Yeats and the Ghost Club Um, which is one area of my recent research related to a chapter that will be published in a forthcoming essay collection called Irish Writing London. It focuses on the Irish poet, playwright and cultural figure WB Yeats, looking especially at his involvement with the London-based esoteric society, the Ghost Club, and taking this involvement in the Ghost Club as a starting point for for a discussion of his spiritualist practices and the development of some of his poetic and prose works. So much is known and discussed about Yeats's involvement with spiritualism, mysticism and magic. We know that he first became interested in Celtic mythology to find what Roy Foster describes as a secret tradition of myth and folklore within Irish culture, that he became involved with a Theosophical Society and the Dublin Hermetic Society in the 1880s and that he joined the magic old order of the Golden Dawn in the 1890s. The automatic writing experiments that he conducted with his wife, George Hyde Lees, in the years following their 1917 marriage are also widely documented. But less is known about Yeats's involvement with the London-based club, the Ghost Club, which he attended between 1911 and 1932. The Ghost Club was launched formally in 1862, dissolved in the 1870s and then later revived on All Saints Day 1882, by A. A. Watts and the medium, Reverend William Stainton Moses. Between 1882 and its formal dissolution in 1936, the club had a total of just 82 members, thanks to its emphasis on exclusiveness and frequent attendance. Each member, or ghost as they were described, whether living or dead, was mentioned in a roll call given at the meetings on All Souls Day each year, the 2nd of November. Meanwhile, when members died, they were described as having passed on. Their non-attendance at the club attributed simply to losses by death. Over its history and through its many guises, the Ghost Club has included various well-known members from the fields of culture, science and literature, it has numbered amongst its ranks Charles Dickens, Sir Osbert Sitwell, Siegfried Sassoon, and more recently Peter Cushing. During Yeats' period of attendance, there were approximately six meetings each year, mostly held at the Maison Jules restaurant in London. The club, in its that particular guise, disbanded on the 2nd of November 1936, when, quote, on this day it was passed unanimously that the club be wound up and its archives offered to the British Museum and if not accepted, the London Library, then the London Spiritualist Alliance, and the Society for Psychical Research, and they have actually ended up in the British Museum. This offer was on the condition that the archive should not be opened up until 25 years after 1936. And as we can see, the club was later revived in different guises, and it still exists now, if you have a look at this um, next slide still exists now as um, an organization for paranormal activity it has its 125 year anniversary 150th year anniversary on saturday uh, with a conference to match so if you if you're interested that's, that it has a brief history as well so it's quite useful for any investigations Um, But this desire expressed in 1936 to keep the archives closed until 1961 implies not only that the material is of a sensitive nature, but also that it might be mocked by others. Of course, many members of the club were society figures leading normal lives. The Ghost Club website tells us that these documents narrowly escaped being destroyed before they were passed on to the archives. However, the members' advanced age would have meant that most, if not all, of them would have passed on by 1961, so that the details of their investigations would have been kept clandestine until after their deaths. At the same time, however, the naming of the Ghost Club minute books and related materials as archives, and the decision to offer them to research libraries, suggests that the members believe that their findings would eventually be of use. This is, I think, seen through the preference to offer them to the British Museum as well. The story of Yates' participation in the Ghost Club situates him within a circle of well-known London figures. These included the physicist and chemist Sir William Crookes, who was in heavily involved with the club for many years, the architect and illustrator Frederick Bly Bond, and the naturalist Alfred Russell Wallace. Yeats joined the Ghost Club in 1911 and was a frequent attendee until just after his marriage in 1917. After this date, he attended meetings sporadically until his final visit in 1932. His wife, George, famously acted as his scriptor for his documents for his esoteric prose work, A Vision, which they started work on shortly after the beginning of their marriage. It is interesting, then, that Yeats continued to visit the Ghost Club, albeit sporadically, after his marriage, when he had a willing amanuensis at home. By investigating the Ghost Club records at the British Library, however, we can see how Yeats' interactions with the club (coughs) allowed him to try out his theories about the spiritual world before an indulgent audience, and enabled him to reaffirm some of the ideas he had expressed or would express in his poetry and writings. The first period of Yeats' attendance can be marked by the years 1911 to 1917, From early on in his attendance at the club, Yates appears to have used the meetings as a platform for discussing the interconnectedness of his spiritual and writing lives. For example, in June 1913, he talks of his communications during a seance with Leo the writer, probably referring to his famous spirit voice, Leo Africanus, who was a returning presence in his spiritual exercises. Then in March 1916, He describes how one of the characters of a play he has been writing while staying in Sussex has appeared to a local girl. Brother Yates spoke spoke of his having been lately in Sussex, engaged in writing a play, and one of the imaginary characters in this play appeared on several occasions to a girl living in the neighbourhood and while she was dreaming. The dreams were recurred and of a terrifying kind. Yeats's observations here denote a slippage between conscious and unconscious states of waking and sleeping within a limbo-like space. Yeats had questioned such states in an earlier address to the Ghost Club in 1911. Describing his early, early forays into spiritualism, he had noted how, quote, Like every other student of the subject, I have been bewildered by the continual deceits, by the strange dreamlike manifestations, by the continual fraud. At the same time, however, the link implied in such visions between the imaginary characters of his play and real people and between Yates' imagination and the visions of an ordinary country girl might give his writings a spiritual resonance and lend his work prophetic power. As G.K. Chesterton puts it, recounting an hypothesis Yeats once made, quote, he used one argument which was sound and I have never forgotten it. It is the fact that it is not abnormal men like artists but normal men like peasants who have borne witness a thousand times to such things it is the farmers who see the fairies a common theme in the descriptions of yeats's contributions to the close club meetings is his relation of stories of normal men and women often living in villages and their psychic experiences in 1912 he tells the story of a miss fox who lived in a little cottage in which he sometimes practised ceremonial magic. And during the Ghost Club meeting of July 1914, he describes an alleged miracle at a Scottish village at which he was accompanied by Edward Fielding and Maud Gone. He said it was alleged that an oleograph picture of the sacred heart in the possession of a village priest had dripped with blood. Brother Yates, the minutes tells us, entered into the subject in great detail. Unfortunately for Yeats, at the next meeting he was forced to concede that it had been ascertained that the red pigment in question was not blood of either human or canine origin. Is it a case then of the country people having the artists on? Entries to the Ghost Club Minute books during this period of Yeats' early and frequent attendance tell us as much about his gullibility as about the members' reactions to events in the outside world. For example, in, in, in an entry for 1st of May 1912, Yeats describes how two clairvoyants, quite independently, had prophesied that he would be killed in a riot. But this is during a period when all those in attendance are feen- feeling keenly their mortality. Hence, after Yeats gives his prediction, the ghost discussed the death of the journalist, critic, and spiritualist W.T. Stead aboard the, the Titanic the previous month. Interestingly, the ghost would read out the Christmas message from Stead, sent presumably from beyond the grave, at the Ghost Club meeting of January 1913. Throughout the period of the First World War, the ghosts devote much of their time to discussing discussing prophecies surrounding battles and trying to communicate with acquaintances who have been killed. At a meeting of 7th of October 1914, for example, Yates recounts during a discussion of the war a communication he has received from a medium, quote, smoke, smoke everywhere, tramping men, high hope, a young face, thunder, oblivion. Brother Yates, the minutes state, submitted that this was unmistakably a battle picture. Similarly, in a meeting of 1915, two brothers tell of attending two separate seances at which they heard from an unidentified man and deduced that he must have passed over while fighting in the war. Aside from their ostensibly prophetic tone, Yates's contributions to the ghost club during this period before his marriage seem to be based around anecdote, as although he is attending séances and carrying out experiments, they are yielding little. Nevertheless, he still has plenty of stories to draw upon. For example, at the meeting of 8th of January 1913, Yeats takes some time recounting a tale of, quote, an interesting experience of a clergyman who, on two occasions, in two places, saw a grotesque figure which he took to be a vampire. But Yeats is unable to corroborate the story as, quote, the clergyman's companion refused to speak about the matter, which is to be regretted, as his evidence would be valuable to substantiate the story. Unfortunately, many of Yeats' stories from this period end in the same way, with the inability to find evidence to substantiate them. A similar situation arises in the subsequent meetings of the club in February and April, during which Yates tells of a story he has heard that one of the Titanic victims, a lady, had since walked into the house of two lady friends in Wales and lived with them for a few days, wearing her sister's clothes and sleeping in the same bed as her sister, then departing as mysteriously as she had come. This, however, he says, he has not yet been able to confirm, while during the next meeting he announces that he is still on the track of the victim of the Titanic disaster and hope to find more out about it, but the episode is never mentioned again. The second period of Yeats's attendance at the club is bookended by his 1917 marriage and his last visit of 1932. After his marriage on 20th of October 1917 and the meeting of the ghost club that he attended on the 2nd of November, Yeats attended ghost club meetings only a handful of times. And though the earlier ghost club records indicate that Yeats had dabbled with automatic writing since around 1911, it is clear that his mar- marriage sparked renewed interest in the practice. As Claire Wells has commented in a recent essay on history, magic and William Butler Yeats, it was George's honeymoon discovery of her talent for automatic writing, beginning as a sly attempt to consolidate her marriage, which set Yeats on the path of his symbolic cosmology, a vision, a 15 years joint work. And there's been a lot written on whether, um, whether George Yeats' ability to be, be a scriptor was um, authentic. And the story really goes that the first time, she made it up, but then after she insisted that she didn't. So, it's interesting, because their marriage was in trouble already within four days. So, she pulled, it, she pulled it out of the bag there. So, in short, Yeats's marriage gave him a ready and willing amanuensis, and the frequency of automatic writing sessions increased as Yates' visits to the club decreased. Yet his sporadic attendance still tells us that he cannot quite rel- relinquish the spiritual offerings of this London group. Moreover, the records indicate that Yates was initially reluctant to discuss the actual circumstances of his spiritualist sessions with the club. He rarely mentioned George, for example, or described their automatic writing practice in any detail, implying that he was hesitant about clarifying the collaborative qualities of his project. Yeats will confess in his introduction to the 1937 edition of A Vision that on the afternoon of October 24, 1917, four days after my marriage, my wife surprised me by attempting automatic writing. But to the Ghost Club, he only acknowledges George's role once, in a meeting of 1929, when he describes how his messages over several years had been given through the hand or utterances when in trance of his wife. Nevertheless, what is revealed at these meetings provides important new approaches to the study of Yeats' spiritualist practices and his writing. For instance, at the Ghost Club meeting of May 1921, Yeats describes how he has been investigating the different types of religions during a recent visit to the US. The minute book for the meeting revealed that he had been investigating Mormonism, Shintoism and other kinds of spiritism on his tour and that he had discovered that the Mormons practiced symbolic healing. On another occasion Yates, having been abroad and absent for some time from the ghost club is described as having given an interesting account of philosophical expositions but Yates's biographer Roy Foster notes that Yates lectured to the ghost club for an alleged three hours during which discretion about his spirit instructors was now apparently thrown to the wind. Yeats's last attendance at the club in April 1932 included another long address, during which he referred to his intended publications of lessons in philosophy that he had received from a group of beings on the other side. But humorously, Yeats recounts the strange smells and visions that have accompanied his communications with these gruff instructors, where he and his wife had witnessed, quote, many phenomena, e.g. a strong scent of roses and apparitions in medieval costume at the time of their son's birth. But this itself is echoed in the introduction to a vision where he notes that during their spirit communications sweet smells were the most constant phenomena so for the last part of the talk i'd like to turn to think about Yeats's poem the second coming and how that can be re- read in light of his contributions to the ghost club between 1919 and 1921. these findings are particularly useful because there is some uncertainty surrounding the development of the poem at manuscript stage, and particularly concerning at what stage and how Yeats's use of the term the second coming came about. Returning to the years after his marriage, the very first meeting that Yeats attended after 1917, in December 1919, gives further clues about the relationship between Yeats's spiritual practices, his stories of these practices, and the texts that apparently emerged from them. Returning from an interlude of self-imposed exile from the club, Yates launched into a summary of the theories he had been developing with his wife during his absence, but made it seem that the information had been gleaned from one source in one sitting, rather than over an extended period. The note taken for the December 1919 meeting, painstakingly recorded Yates' address, crossing out words and phrases in a bid to represent Yeats' views as faithfully as possible. I have a cleaned up version of what he says here. He says, Brother Yates said he had received information from a supranormal source, which is something they use, which means in between supernatural and normal. That the whole world, cloud, and tribulation was but a prelude to a different state of civilization and the introduction to a philosophy of life, a foundation of a new spiritual epoch. The important thing was not the present upheaval, but the reaction which would follow, culminating in a kind of second coming of Christ, not literal coming of a simple incarnate personality but rather of many individuals in many lands, all illumined with the same spiritual influence. This dense passage is illuminating in various ways. Whether or not we credit the circumstances in which Yeats claims he has received this information, the minute Taker's recording uses language that foreshadows the prophetic images of the second coming, which we have some of them here. Take, for instance, the circular motif of the world cloud and tribulation which appears to apprehend Yates' circular vision of chaos in the poem, where in the first line, all is turning and turning in the widening gyre. And in line four, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Moreover, the idea that this tribulation is merely a prelude to a different state of civilization and the introduction to a philosophy of life, which heralds a new spiritual epoch, envisages the rough beast of the second coming. The last two lines, one that slouches towards Bethlehem to be born as a kind of awful messianic figure for the 20th century. The barely suppressed excitement of the second coming, which leaves the reader unsure whether or not the poet heralds the terrible beauty of the slow moving beast and the upheaval that will follow, finds an intriguing prediction in the details that are crossed out from the above passage. And yet, though, we are not given an image of one messianic figure heralding Yeats's envisaged second coming, but rather of several. Many individuals in many lands are predicted to arrive, all illumined with the same spiritual influence. The confusion that Yeats's comments at that meeting had caused led, Yeats, led Yeats's ghost brothers to make further inquiries at the subsequent meeting in January. In response, Yeats took to the floor concluding after some extended description that, quote, the expected revelation will but be identical with that already given by Christ, but will represent the portion of truth he was unable to express. So this answer is similar in tone to the prophetic, somewhat self-important Yates of a vision. Yates steps himself up as this kind of spiritual guide who is carrying out the work that Christ himself could not. Meanwhile, the notion of a revelation predicts once again the prophetic tone of the second coming where surely some revelation is at hand, thus hinting at further affinities between Yeats's apparently tentative spiritual experiments and his ultimate literary works. Of course, what is unclear here is how truthfully Yeats is explaining the actual information he received at the original spiritual meeting with his supranormal source. Is he clarifying his ideas or expanding upon new ideas in order to further impress and baffle his audience? A collection of esteemed spiritualists, scientists and public figures? Or do his descriptions reflect instead a poet struggling to put into words the supernormal images he has gleaned from his spirit sources via his script to wife? Is Yates simply reading in his spirit visions an answer to the ultimate meaning he has already been searching for in his work? Or perhaps more cynically, has Yeats embellished the first spirit meeting in order to play to an eager audience who might listen to his theories and commend his spiritual wisdom? Whether the December 1919 meeting marked the first expression of the phrase the second coming in relation to Yates's spiritualist theories is difficult to establish. It does, however, predate any existing manuscripts that contain that um, particular expression. Nevertheless, what the Ghost Club records do reveal is that this meeting signalled a moment some months before the poem would actually be published at the end of 1920, when Yeats outlined, in the most public way yet, the revelatory theories that had informed or would inform his composition of the poem. Previously to this, Yeats had apparently discussed his poem with his wife and with his friend and sometimes collaborator Ezra Pound. But by December 1919, he felt able to divulge and expand upon his theories to this esoteric London society, and in turn to have them written down and recorded in the Ghost Club Minute books. So to conclude, I just want to think about what the most sensible way might be to think about Yeats' spiritualist practices as evidenced by his involvement in the Ghost Club. With all of Yeats' forays into seances, automatic writing endeavours, and spiritualist practices, the question of their credibility does need to be raised. In her book Wisdom of Two, Margaret Mills Harper notes with regard to WB Yeats's and George's experiments she says, inexplicably sometimes the pen moves. This is the moment of mystery the moment that in retrospect as well as on the immediate occasion may provoke either ridicule or true belief. It has done both as the tale of the automatic writing has been told and retold in Yeats' studies. And it's interesting there this idea of the pen moving. Is that something that what one might talk about in terms of literary inspiration as well, or is it something that is codified through spirituality and spiritualism? As Harper asks later of Yeats's findings, should they be granted any status besides that of fiction, self-delusion or fraud? Yet to reduce Yeats' involvements with spiritualism to cheap, brainless fakerism, as the American poet Marianne Moore did, is to miss a trick. For beyond giving us opportunities for retrospective mockery, the evidence provided by resources such as the Ghost Club archives reveals intriguing connections between Yates' spiritual investigations and his work, and reaffirms the importance of spiritual study to his poetic method. And for the final comment on all this, we might turn back to Yates himself, who wrote a poem of gratitude to his unknown instructors. In just four lines, Yeats summarises what he feels he owes them, as if in answer to those sceptics who doubt him. What they undertook to do, they brought to pass. All things hang like a drop of dew on a blade of grass. In these lines, Yeats makes it clear that his instructors have done more than he expected of them, and that they gave him tools for poetry. Whether or not we believe these instructors are real, then, might actually be beside the point it thank you. <laughs> Has anybody got any comments or questions or points they'd like to raise or go over, Andrew? Hi
1: Tara, thanks for that. That was very, very important to them deliveries. Um I was
0: just wondering about the poem for
1: souls, yeah, and Hello, Tara, how are <laughs> you? Um, and about the um, you know the ghost drinking the vapor of the wine and we drink the whole wine but the ghost gets drunk on the half breath and whether that had anything to do with it.
0: What year was that? To remind me, is that a later oh, poem? 2020, yes. Yeah, 2020 so, so okay. So I
2: thought that was Christchurch he was talking about, and someone said no, he isn't. It's Christchurch Dublin, isn't Oh uh, yes, yeah. Like cathedral. cathedral. Yeah. You know that. Yeah. And it was written in Oxford. Yes, it was. But
1: yeah. it, I don't think it is. It used to be on Wendy News on Broad Street. That See, that's a really good point,
0: isn't like it? That. Because yeah. of the Ghost Club and its emphasis on All Souls' Night. Yeah, yeah I hadn't really thought about that.
1: Whether there was a yeah. Reaction, yeah. A direct
0: I mean, I didn't find anything specific to the poem in in the, yeah. the minutes, but that is a really interesting point that perhaps he's inspired because that's just after he's been going to the the um, club quite a lot actually at that time. And so yeah, it might be. That. That's a great point, Andrew. Thank you. I don't know. Yes. the golden door, did he have dealings with people
1: like Crowley and Spare and? <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I was listening to, I don't know as much about that, that period, but I was listening to uh, Roy Foster talk about it the other day in the way that he um, basically just dabbled in lots of different things. And the Golden Dawn was when he get, got into magic for a bit, but found out that he wasn't really any good at it, so he kind of left it behind. So he would have been involved with all, all of those as well, yeah. Because I think with him it's, it's kind of a hodgepodge. There's kind of the mysticism, then there's a the magic, then there's the kind of theosophy, then there's this... He's always trying to find a system, I think.
1: Looking for something other, not really there what Yeah,
0: exactly. Something other than Christianity, I guess.
1: Mm-hmm. Michael? I'm struck by the role of widening wife. I mean, technically, she wrote a lot of these abusive sources without being properly accepted. Yeah.
0: And that's what that Mills Harper book is about, the Wisdom yeah. of Two books.
1: Mean, to what
0: well, I think what seemed to happen is that Yates played it down when he was alive and then recently it's come to light how involved that she was, I guess. Um, you know, like in the, in the minute books, like I mentioned, he barely mentions her at all. And I think that's deliberate, because um, I think he sees her as just a, a kind of medium, in a way, and therefore perhaps he still can still retain his title as the artist. Um, but he doesn't, you know, he doesn't begrudge it of her. He just doesn't really credit her with all the authority of.
2: Unknown instructors, are they un- unknown to Yeats or are they
0: unknown to us reading them? That's a good far. question. Um, both. <laughs> I think it's because he has these, he can't name all of his instructors, so he has famous ones like Leo. But then he has other ones that are just. I thought just he was talking
2: about things, the people that were in the past, that... In, that oh, no, he's past. talking about his spirits.
0: He's, he's taught, right. Yeah, so the spirits that guide him. Not all of whom have have a name, so some of them have names, and other ones are more elusive.
2: Through through
0: media through the medium of his wife, or through um, seances, or through uh, Ouija boards. He he didn't use them as much actually; they weren't that fashionable at the time.
2: But to instruct him, they'd have to
0: be qualified. That's what I'm trying. Yeah, but he yeah he I think he sort of sees it as them being from another world. Instructing him on how to think about the way that our world works, but they know more because they are kind of beyond this world. I thought
2: he was talking about it. they're telling him how to, how to write
0: poetry. Or but I think th- they do give him metaphors for poetry, so they are in a way. That, that I think that's what my point. My point yeah. is, is that a lot of people are very dismissive and kind of mocking of Yeats' interest in the spirit spirit world, yeah. but he sees them as giving him metaphors for poetry, as well as a kind of system of belief. Um, was his wife
1: ever revealed as a fraud, or
2: was she genuinely... Did you have some of
0: connection? Well, the only evidence apparently is that she she spoke to Richard Ellman, who's an early AIDS biographer, and she told him the first time, this is all we know, is that she said, the first time I made it up because um, i don't know if you know much about Yates' um romantic life but he was massively hung up on maud garn the great nationalist for many years then tried to marry her daughter and then <laughs> so george Lees, who was a an english woman kind of a, almost an arist- aristocrat wasn't his first choice and he was quite old by that stage i mean i think he was i guess he was in his 50s so it wasn't. It was kind of a marriage of convenience. And so the story goes that she realizes very early on that it didn't work. So she told Richard Elman that she made this up the first time. But then after that, it was. It wasn't made up. That she did it. That she had this power. She kind of discovered it. But you see, because it's easy. It's quite easy to laugh, but. I'm not saying you're doing that. I mean, one laughs. But if you see the amount of stuff there is, the amount of scripts, 15 years' work, I don't think you would do that. I don't think you would keep it up for that long if you really thought it wasn't doing anything. You know. And I wonder how much of it is kind of momentum and impetus and that kind of thing. I'm not sure. But how much of it
1: actually is... Obviously, she started doing it as you intimated because things weren't going as well. Well, they work. just didn't have
0: anything in common, I think. yeah. I mean, yeah.
1: Is there much of the, the, the writing from this automatic writing that says things like, you know, you should be nicer to George or it's time to put
0: the <laughs> no. It, <but> <laughs> it? no. it's No, no, no. It's all about philosophy. I mean, if you, try, if you try and read it, it's a bit of a headache, but it's all about philosophy and instruction and um, existence and the relationship between man and art and all of that kind of thing. But
1: there's no suggestion that she is gaining benefit from
0: what she's writing? No, I think it's the only benefit she gets is that she has a... A strong role in her husband's life, and keeps and keeps him. Although he's not sexually faithful to her, he is loyal to her for the rest of his life, and she to him. So I guess you could see it as to think what binds them together. Well, stupid, no. no, not at all. Sorry. If And who's, sorry. I don't know about that, actually. What, why do you ask? Oh, okay. No, I d- actually don't know an answer to that question. I've never seen... I mean, I worked on the letters for a couple of years and I never saw any, but I'm not sure. I mean, couldn't say for sure. So, I mean, I think cause he was mainly involved with the Hermetic Society in Dublin, so I don't know whether they would have their paths would have crossed. And Michael, did you have
1: something? Well, just, I was just doing that, I remember about all things take, and um, uh, 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 what was the fascinating from you, and it made me feel that Mark realized this, because there's a double number of planet behind you. Mm-hmm. you might have everything, you know.
0: Yeah. Um, Uh, Oh, I think he would have. I think he would have definitely been aware. You know, because it's something. Yeah, every. I mean, every writer from this time has a comment on it. There's, you know, Elizabeth Bishop and Robert Lowell joke about it, and they talk about him, like, having relationships with cats and things like that people just mock it the whole time and i think it's only recently that people have actually started saying well maybe it's something that deserves a bit more serious consideration and i definitely think fan o'brien he would have known because yates was such a public figure and, and and actually what's really interesting as well is that Yeats thought of a vision i was listening to something the other day and it said that Yeats thought of this stuff as the second most important thing in his life after his poetry he didn't think it was trivial and um, I've been looking recently at his um, publication history with Matt and he wanted to put the vision, a vision, at the start of all of his collections. But it was his publishers that told him to put it at the back because they said no one would read it. So he clearly thought that it was much more important than people ever gave it credence for. But at the time, every yeah, pe- people were either in the esoteric camp or they weren't. I think, you know, they w- and actually there weren't that many writers apart from people like A.E. Who, who were dabbling in it as much as Yates was at this time. Um, I wondered if we could just, before we finish, have a show of hands think about how, 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 what people think about this, whether, whether it's something that we should take seriously or not. Maybe not a show of hands, but you know. what's the feeling about it?
1: I definitely think we should take it seriously. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean I've done some work on James Merrill who used Bridgeboards for years and mm. years to poetry supposedly communicated with William Blake and Walt Whitmer mm. and Amy
0: Dickinson and all of these people. It's nice there. all these clever people that he communicated oh, with. <laughs> yeah, they're all,
1: they're all no no rubbish writers just, you know, though. Chance encounters with, with, the, milkman uh, know, you know, with the milkman or something. <laughs> but um, but also, you know, so many models of literary influence I think Actually, he talked about communing with spirits in a sense, about communing with the dead. You think of Sartre's What is literature, and he talks about books being dead until we reanimate them yeah. in the reading, and it's it's one short step between you know from that to necromancy in a way. And equally, you know, T. S. Eliot, position um, in the individual talent, when mm-hmm. he's uh, writing about the way in which writers communicate with past texts and and readings, I suppose change the tradition through that. Um, there's always this implication of of a kind of spiritualism. So I think it's a really useful model for thinking about influence anyway. Mm. I think we should definitely... Does
0: anyone disagree?
2: I just wanted to add something on the agreement Mm. side of it. Um, I've always kind of been interested in things like the Theosophy Society and just never quite known is it real or where's the scientific evidence behind it. People taking this studies very, very seriously down the centuries now. And I've always sat on the fence a little bit, I'd like to think this, there is something. But my scientific head says no. Then a couple of years ago, um, I decided to, to, to write a, 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 a book of fiction. And it was very much based on uh, people that I know. So the characters were all very real. But the story was—it um, was where my imagination took it. And it was very different to the life I was leading but it's actually come true hmm. now this wasn't i wasn't <laughs> thinking spiritually or channeling or anything along those lines i wasn't even writing it was at a pc so it was as you know it was as modern day as anything could possibly be but the events that create that were in the, the story which were just my imagination going places and i wouldn't have expected to actually happen um, it was all about buying hmm. land with moorings and creating a community where people lived on boats, and I'm doing that now. So it was never in my plans to do that. So I can't help but it's wonder, I analyze my own head and think, you know, how did it get from there to there? It must have been in my mind somewhere to do it. But the mm-hmm. fact that it's happened is, mm-hmm. is, you know, makes me think, well, okay, then mm-hmm. we'll <laughs> accept that there's more going on mm. than the rational,
0: mm. Because it might just be about different types of consciousness or unconsciousness we're mm-hmm. not aware of. Mm-hmm. but I think we've kind of run out of time but thank you very much for coming thank you for your input